Zeal for your house will consume me. In uh, the spring of 1963, and then stretching on into 1964, uh, there was a movement, uh, you know, think of that time as right in the middle of the civil rights movement. And in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, students from the historic, two historically black colleges, Lemoyne College and Owen College, uh, together with white students uh, from historically white college, Rhodes College, Southwestern at the time, uh, joined together at what was a movement that was happening really all over the Southeast called the Movement of Neil Lens. Uh, it was organized by the NAACP, and what the Neil Lynn movement did, just as others went to lunch counters that had been segregated to protest uh, against segregated places of business, the Neil Lynn protesters would go in mixed race groups to local houses of worship, to churches, seeking to worship there, seeking to be admitted into either both, actually went to both uh, historically all black churches and historically all white churches, to see how they would be received and if they would be admitted into worship. Responses varied. Some welcomed them with open arms. Some welcomed them but told them they could sit in the back. Others told them perhaps you'd be happier at another church and we could help to transport you there. Some barred the doors entirely. They created intentionally at a house of worship a crisis. They were trying to incite a crisis, bring the people to a moment where they had to decide, will we either exclude our brothers and sisters or will we embrace them? Either way, in a moment of embrace, it presented a powerful picture that reconciliation has to start in the household of God. In an exclusion, it would stand as a prophetic witness against the sin of racism and segregation. So here you had a prophetic act in a house of worship. They were called troublemakers uh, by many of those who kept them away. They, they questioned their intentions. But what these young students at these Neil Inns were doing was they knew that the renewal of the world starts with the renewal of the house of God. It starts with the renewal of the household of God and the church. And they knew their Bible and they knew their church history enough to know that there was a tradition of bold and prophetic acts in households of worship. Maybe they remembered back to something that happened 500 years ago next month in October of 1517, when Martin Luther uh, in Wittenberg, Germany, uh, took his 95 theses and nailed them to the door of the Wittenberg Cathedral. Again, a troublemaker doing a prophetic act in a household of worship because he knew when he looked out at the world of his time and saw the rampant uh, corruption of the church, the, the ministerial negligence that was going on, the theological error that had crept into the church, he knew that the renewal of the world starts with the renewal of the church. And so he went to a household of worship to do a prophetic act to, promote, to provoke a crisis because he also knew his Bible and he knew his history. Maybe he knew and was thinking back all the way back to the story that we read in, in John 2. When Jesus, another man who was called a troublemaker, showed up to a household of God, to the house of God, the temple, the very center of Israelite worship on the highest of their holy days, the Passover, and performed a disruptive and prophetic act because Jesus himself knew that the renewal that he came to bring, the renewal of the entire world, started and starts with the renewal of God's household, God's worship. Of course, Jesus himself knew both his Bible and his history, right? He knew uh, in the prophet Malachi, the very last 
prophet, the very last book of your Old Testament, contains these words in Malachi chapter three. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. That's the priests in the temple. He will refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. God will return to his temple. He'll return to his household, and he'll bring renewal there. And out of that household will come renewal for the entire world. Well, this is a strange story. This story of Jesus cleansing the temple, Jesus casting out the sellers in the temple. This isn't how we often think about Jesus, is it? I've, you know, I've, been, in, I've been in a lot of churches all over the world, and I have never once uh, seen a stained glass window in a church depicting Jesus with a whip driving out the money changers. Right? I've never seen a, uh, a, a flannel board Sunday school picture uh, that did justice to, uh, to this side of Jesus. This is a strange picture of Jesus. What is he doing? What's going on in this story uh, of the angry Jesus? Well, we have to, we have to if we can, it's, it's such a strange world to us, but we have to try to put our imaginations back in what it would have been like at the Passover in Jesus's time. The Passover was the highest day in Israel's religious year. It was a time when Jews from all over the Roman Empire, from all over anyone who could get there, would go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Remember, the Passover was the day that they celebrated God setting them free from slavery in Egypt. And it was a day that was overwhelming uh, in its pageantry. It was a day where there would have been thousands upon thousands of animals sacrificed in the temple. And if you were a Jew coming from the far reaches of the Roman Empire, say you were traveling from Corinth or from Rome, uh, you likely wouldn't have brought with you uh, an ox or a sheep or, or, or for the poor, a dove or a pigeon. Right? You likely wouldn't have brought your own animals with you, so when you got to the temple, you would have needed to buy an animal to make your sacrifice. Likely, you would have been carrying with you the coinage of the Roman Empire, which probably on one side had a picture of Caesar who believed himself to be a god. On the other side, you probably had a picture of one of the Roman deities. And those coins in their idolatrous image couldn't be used at the temple, so you would have had to change that coin for temple coin and then buy your animals so that when you came into worship, you could make your sacrifice before God. So what's going on here in the temple is in some ways a necessary service. It's something that, that had to happen for the people to be able to worship as they were commanded to do in the Bible. So in some ways, it was a necessary service that they were meeting for the people. Now, you know, this, this seems strange to us. It's hard to think about a religious world that revolved around sacrifice. They revolved around the bloody sacrifice of thousands and thousands of animals, right? There is no neat and tidy way to slaughter an ox. It would have been a bloody and messy and noisy and smelly affair. It almost seems barbaric to us to think back and think that these people actually believed that the sacrifice of animals, and not only did they, did they believe, but God instructed them to believe that this kind of sacrifice was necessary but I think deep down we know that forgiveness always involves suffering. 
That forgiveness always involves sacrifice. If you've ever forgiven anybody for anything in your life, what you've said is, instead of punishing this person for what they've done to me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna instead suffer myself in some ways. I'm gonna swallow that. Instead of taking out my revenge, instead of getting even, I'm gonna lay down, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay down, I'm gonna die to my own right for revenge. And I'm gonna forego it. Sacrifice is always involved in forgiveness. Somebody has to sacrifice in order for forgiveness to be possible. And this entire system of sacrifice in the temple was a large-scale, visceral representation that for God to forgive humans, for God to forgive his people, there had to be sacrifice. There had, somebody had to take the cost. Somebody had to spill their blood. And so for, for centuries, that happened and was enacted through the temple sacrifices. And they did that. They received the cleansing of the sacrifice. And then in awe and in gratitude, they gave thanks to God. And that was the way that worship worked. And so what is Jesus so worked up about here? If they were called to make the sacrifices, right? If they were called to make it, if the, if the money changers and those selling animals were performing a necessary service, what is going on when Jesus walks in and he says that he, he says, you've turned my father's house into a house of trade. We might say you've turned the church into a shopping mall. And something inside of him is so moved that he goes and he sits down and deliberately, over time, takes the, the rushes, the grass that was used for the animals' beds, and he starts slowly knitting for himself a whip. Takes some time, just sits there and does it, and then gets up with a handful, a makeshift whip made of grass, clears out an entire temple, that would have been the size of several football fields. Right? One commentator says anybody, anybody can clear a room with the crack and sting of a bullwhip. Right? If somebody came in here and started cracking a whip, we would all get out of here pretty quick. But it takes something else to clear a large outdoor area with a fistful of grass. <laughs> Jesus cleansed the temple. He cleared the temple by force of personality. <laughs> He cleared the temple by the sheer weight and power of the zeal that he was feeling. He drove out the animals, the ox, the sheep, the money changers with him, and they left. And it says that the disciples remembered the words of Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Why is Jesus so passionate here? What's he so angry about? Jesus is angry. Jesus is worked up against anything that detracts and distracts from the worship and glory of God, right? This isn't just him going after corrupt religion. You know, we don't, it, they, the author doesn't tell us anything about whether they were taking advantage of the people or if they were selling it for too much. He's not after perverse religion. He's after all of the trappings of religion that can distract us from what worship is meant to be about, the glory of God and our gratitude for his sacrifice, our gratitude for his grace. And Jesus opposes absolutely anything uh, that takes away from that. The temple was meant to be, here are people who've traveled thousands of miles or hundreds of miles, many of them, days upon days on foot or on camel to worship God. 
And then when they get there, they find a noisy scene, something that should have been happening outside the temple, something that should have been happening before they got there, taking place in the, what was called the court of the Gentiles, the place where non-Israelites were supposed to be able to get close to God, where outsiders were supposed to be able to come in and worship. And he sees them being blocked from the worship of God. And he lashes out. He pushes back against it. He opposes it. You know, we are, we are a long way uh, in our day from temples and sacrifices and, and, and money changers and all of that. But do you know that there's still so many ways that all of the other stuff of religion can crowd out for the church our single-minded focus on God, on his glory, on our awe and our gratitude of his presence and his grace. You know, I, I confess as a pastor, it is, it is tremendously easy for me to make church about everything other than God, about everything other than worship, about everything other than prayer. It's easy for me to make it into a matter of how many people are coming, is it growing, how's the budget doing, how's our programming working. It's easy to make it about all of the trappings of church and about ministry and lose a heart's focus on God and his kingdom and our awe and his presence. Right, if that's the temptation for a pastor, I think it's, it's tempting for, for, for Christians in America to make church about everything other than Godward-facing worship and neighbor-facing love. Right, it's easy to make church about how are my needs being met? How do I like the music? How do I like the kids' programming? How do I like the location? How do I like what's going on? It's easy for us in our own ways to turn church into a shopping mall, right? A place where a consumer transaction instead of worship takes place, where I, I give a little something and then I get something. And we do this. We evaluate churches on the, consu- on a, on the basis of a, as a consumer product, just like we do everything else. And I don't know whether it's pastoral dysfunction to try to meet those needs or consumer dysfunction to demand it, but it's unhealthy. <laughs> and it leads us to a place where we're facing inward as a church instead of facing upward towards God and outward towards our neighbors. Right, the church, it's so easy for us to make good and necessary secondary things into our main thing. And that's what happens when we turn church growth into the main thing, we turn children's ministry into the main thing, or social improvement, social action into the main thing. We make it about anything other than men and women and children coming to know the grace of God in Jesus and then coming into his presence to worship him and to live their entire lives before him. When the church becomes an impediment to that instead of an open door, instead of a, an, a, a, an invitation to worship, we too turn the house of God into a house of trade. And so it says that the, the zeal for God's house consumes Jesus. One translation puts it this way, zeal for your house rips me limb from limb. And that's the idea that, that he's overcome by zeal, overcome by this passion for the glory of God to his own destruction. And friends, that is the story that the gospel of John is gonna tell for the next 19 chapters after this. It is the story of Jesus's wholehearted commitment to the glory of God and the embrace of men and women. That is his absolute commitment to God's glory is what leads him ultimately to be torn limb from limb to be driven even to the cross for the glory of God and for the embrace of people just like you and me. That literally zeal for God's glory, passion for God's worship is what leads Jesus to his death. His willing 
God-honoring death for the glory of his Father and our good. He tells us this when he says, when he's asked for a sign for doing this, he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He says, destroy this temple. The disciples later are going to realize that he was talking about his body. Destroy me, the new temple, the new sacrifice, the new priesthood, the new place where heaven and earth meet. And in three days, I'll rebuild it. That the spirit of God will raise me from the dead. Zeal for your house will consume me. And it did consume Jesus. And so he drove the money changers out of the temple because they got in the way of the worship of God. And the amazing thing, in fact, sometimes the terrifying thing, is that the passion, the zeal, the even anger of Jesus that was so committed to God's glory that he drove out of the temple everything that stood in its way is just as committed to driving out of my life and out of my heart and out of your life and out of your heart, temples of the Holy Spirit. He is just as committed to driving out of your heart everything that stands in the way of the worship of God. Everything that stands in the way of our wholehearted worship and awe and gratitude and devotion to Jesus. That same zeal that burned against the money changers burns against my pride and my lust and my laziness and my idolatry and my addictions that Jesus is committed to cleansing our hearts, cleansing the church. How does he do that? How do our hearts become cleansed by Jesus? What happens whenever we meet the real Jesus? When it happens whenever we meet Jesus as he really is. Remember, we said at the beginning of the story, we don't recognize this Jesus. When we look at this Jesus and this behavior, we go, who is he and what is he doing? But whenever we meet the real Jesus, our hearts are changed. You know, I think the key to this comes in trying to understand why does John put these two stories in John chapter two right next to each other? Right, if you remember, if you were here last week, we saw a story where Jesus at the wedding at Cana shows up and they run out of wine at this party. And Jesus makes more wine out of water. He prolongs a party that had run out of steam by providing new wine, by enlarging the party, by, power, by, by pouring out his life and his grace and his goodness. He's the Lord of the wine. And then here in this story, immediately after, he shows up in Jerusalem and he ends the party. He ends business as usual religion. He's, he's not only Lord of the wine, he's also Lord of the whip. He's also the Jesus who comes and sometimes turns our lives so upside down that we go, who are you and what are you doing? What kind of Jesus is this? And change, real change, always happens when we meet the real Jesus who's Lord of both of those things. Sometimes Jesus comes into our lives as Lord of the wine. Right? Sometimes we have that experience of him pouring out his life into us and we're abounding with grace and we're grateful. Sometimes he comes and he prolongs our party. He answers our prayers in the ways that we long for them to be answered. Right? Remember, his, his extension of the, the wedding at Cana was an answer to Mary's prayer when she said, we're out of wine. He answers the prayer. Sometimes he answers the prayers in the way that we want and the way that we ask and he's Lord of the wine. Other times... He comes into our lives as Lord of the whip. And we feel his judgment. We feel his critique. We feel sometimes in our lives as though he's taking all of the furniture and he's just throwing it around the room. As though he's totally uprooting 
who we are. We feel this when we come into suffering and so we suffer in ways that we didn't know that we could. And we go, Jesus, what are you doing? We experience this when we're convicted of sin in our life and we, we, we feel the weight of stuff we just can't quit. And we go, Jesus, am I ever gonna be, why haven't you taken this from me? I've been asking you to take this off of me for so long. What, what, are, you, what are you doing? Sometimes it's in a difficult relationship where we just can't quite seem to make it work and to bring reconciliation and unity. And we don't know what Jesus is doing in the midst of it. And one of the saddest things that I think I can ever, I've ever heard people say, and you hear it sadly too often, is I used to believe in God, but. Right, I used to believe in God, but then I got cancer. Or I used to believe in God, but then my divorce came. Or I used to believe in God, but then I ended up on the streets and I thought he was there for me and he wasn't. Right, or it's cousin, the cousin to that expression is I would believe in God, but... Right, I would believe in God, but I look around and I see people suffering and I don't know if I can. Or I, I would believe in Jesus, but he said so many hard things. Right, I want to believe in his grace and his goodness, but I, the part about you know, submitting my, my financial life to him, or I don't want, I don't want to do that, or the part about uh, submitting the way that I use my body and my sexuality to his kingship, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. Right, so we say there's parts of God that I like, there's parts that I don't like, or if I, I would believe in God, but, but that's not the real Jesus. The, the real Jesus means that we don't get to pick and choose which parts of Jesus. We don't get to pick the Lord of the wine and leave the Lord of the whip out. We don't get to pick the Jesus that says things we like, but that he never gets to contradict us. Right, if you've ever been in any kind of relationship and the other person in the relationship doesn't have the power to contradict you, Right? They don't have the power to tell you that you're wrong or to tell you that you've hurt them. That's not a real relationship. That's an unhealthy and abusive relationship. Right? In every real relationship, you have to be vulnerable to be contradicted, to, to hear things you don't want to hear, to have to deal with a real person. And we meet the real Jesus. We respond very often like the, the temple leaders did. They say, what sign do you show us to show that you have the right to do this? Right, one, one uh, Eugene Peterson in his translation says, what credentials do you show? Right, why do you, who do you think you are that you get to treat us like this, that you get to judge us like this? Who do you think you are? And when we come into that moment where our, our, our furniture is turned upside down, we very often say, Jesus, who do you think you are? Who do you, what, what do you think gives you the right uh, to, to treat me like this? The great novelist and short story writer, Flannery O'Connor, said this, if he's God, if he's God, then he gets to come in and throw the furniture around. Amen. Right, if God is God, if Jesus is God, then he gets to be disruptive. He gets to stir us up and to challenge us and to change us. You know, Jesus, interestingly, never gives them an answer. He never gives them a sign. He makes a cryptic saying about tear this temple down and I'll build it up. And it just goes completely over their head. He spends no time at all explaining why he's done what he's done. Right, and very often he spends no time telling us why. Right, when we're in the midst of suffering, one of the things that we want most is to know why. Right, when, when, when people come in and, and want to talk with a counselor, with a pastor about the, what's going on in their lives, when everything's getting turned upside down, usually they want us to figure out how to get Jesus to stop, 
right? How, how can you help this pain stop? How can you make it go away? <laughs> and secondly, they wanna know why. Why, what's happening? Why is this Jesus that I thought I knew behaving in this strange way in my life? Why? But Jesus very often doesn't tell us why. At least he doesn't help us, he doesn't tell us why right in the midst of it. We don't know why usually right as it's happening. It's like Job, right? Job, the the great story of suffering in history in the Bible, right? Job brings all of his questions of why and instead God appears before him. He doesn't waste any time telling him why. He gives a, a storm and a hurricane and he speaks. And Job says, I had heard about you, but now I know you. Right? It's in the suffering, he doesn't get an answer. He gets to know God. And Jesus says here in this, in this moment, in this hurricane, I'm not gonna tell you why, but I'm gonna show you myself. And the key to it is understanding that even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our struggles, that it's the same Jesus the same Jesus that brings the wine sometimes brings the whip. And that both, whatever, whether he's answering your prayers in the ways that, that you want or not, it's the same Jesus and his heart towards you and for you is always the same. That his motive towards you is always love. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And it's always your good. Yeah. It's always what you need. Yeah. He's always oriented towards you, for you, not against you. And in time, we'll understand why. You know, the, the, interestingly, the disciples, Jesus says, destroy this temple. In three days, I'll build it up. They have no clue what he's talking about. The Jews say it's taken 46 years to build the temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. Right, this is a, this is a long, slow reveal for the punchline of this joke or not joke, this, this incredible story, right? The disciples had to wait three full years before they got it. And then when Jesus rose from the dead, they said, oh yeah, yeah. He used to say things like this. He used to talk in these strange ways about things that would happen in three days. And, but it wasn't until they saw the risen Jesus face to face that they understood what he was doing. And we may get perspective in this life about why we've suffered, we might see some of the the fingerprints and start to understand what God was doing in our lives. But for some of us, it might not be until we too see the risen Jesus face to face that it all starts, the, the scales fall off and we say, oh Jesus, now I understand what you were doing and why, what you were pruning out of my life, what you were doing in my heart. You know, I was talking uh, this week with, uh, with Batch Batch elders around here somewhere. Um, and we were talking uh, about where in your life have you experienced this kind of story where it felt like everything was turned upside down and you didn't know what, what God was doing. And he said, and I got his permission to that. You don't have to worry about telling me every stuff. I won't just use it in a sermon without tell, asking you. Um, but Batch and Holly, they lived on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi when Hurricane Katrina uh, came through. And they, they evacuated as, as everyone did. And when they came back, instead of a house, there were just concrete steps leading to a vacant lot. Uh, entire house swept away. And he said, in the midst of that, I came to realize after the fact that God was taking all of the comforts, all of the ease that I had gr- thought that I couldn't live without. And he was taking them away so that we learned to live in greater trust and reliance on Jesus. It's a beautiful picture of how we don't see it in the midst of it. We don't understand why when it's happening. 
But as we get the distance of seeing a good and faithful Lord working in our lives, we start to see the patterns of his grace. Now, you know, you never could have gone to Batch or to Holly in the midst of that when they're standing there weeping at the foundations of their old home and put your arm around them and said, brother, let me tell you what God's teaching you in the midst of this. I think that God is trying to teach you how to not trust in your house. No, Brother Batch would have likely uh, punched you in the face uh, if you were a man and did that to him. Right? It's, it, it can be hurtful when we try to push for perspective uh, in the midst when everything's upside down and we, and we don't know what's happening. In the moment, we just need people to help us believe and to trust that, that Jesus is the Lord and he is good to us. We started this by saying that the hope for the renewal of the world starts with the renewal of the church. It starts with my renewal and your renewal by God's grace, us meeting the real Jesus, being convicted of our sin, having our hearts cleansed of everything impure, coming more and more to rely on his grace and to live for his glory. But that's our hope as a church. That's the hope of the world. That's the hope of our life. You know, we started by talking about the, the Memphis Neolens in the summer of 63 and 64, those, those Neolins reached their height uh, at a church called Second Presbyterian Church in East Memphis. Uh, Second Pres uh, barred the would-be worshipers from the door. They kept them from worshiping. Over time, it, it became front page news on the Memphis Commercial Appeal. It was, it was covered with pictures of Presbyterian elders with their arms crossed in front of the church door, backed by police keeping uh, these mixed-race couples out of their church. It took the disciples three years to realize what Jesus was doing. It took Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis 20 years, 20 years to learn the lessons of those days. But what God did in it is one of the most remarkable and beautiful stories of a church being renewed by his grace that I've ever seen. They sought out uh, where they were still alive, those would-be worshipers who came to them that day. They sought them out. They asked for forgiveness. They invited them to worship with them. Second Pres became a church uh, that started a seminary uh, in inner city Memphis uh, called Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies to raise up a generation of African-American church leaders for the city of Memphis. They planted several, several churches in inner city Memphis. They adopted inner city schools and gave millions of dollars uh, for the life of some of the descendants of the people that they previously had told weren't allowed to worship there. Right? God is patient. God works persistently to expose our idols, to expose our sin, and to purify our hearts from them. But the Lord who began a good work in you will see it through to completion, even if it takes decades.